Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Emily Gao, I'm the director of the DeVos Center on Religion and Civil Society, where we protect life, marriage, and religious liberty. For those of you who are in the audience now, um, we ask you to kindly silence your cell phones. We are delighted to join with many others across America to observe and celebrate National Adoption Awareness Month. The lives of millions of Americans have been profoundly enriched through the process of adoption. Vulnerable children have found permanence and security with forever families. And the lives of parents and siblings have been expanded and enriched by the addition of a new child or a new sibling. The wonderful miracle of adoption that we celebrate could not happen without the critical work of the nation's child welfare agencies. They provide a lifeline between vulnerable children and welcoming families. Heritage is delighted to host this panel of experts led by our dear friend, Catherine Jean Lopez senior fellow at the National Review Institute and editor-at-large at National Review. As she recently wrote, there are over 442,000 children in foster care, and more than 100,000 are eligible for adoption. We've got 330 million people living in the United States. She described this as a national call to love. One of the members of Congress who has courageously responded to this call to love is Representative Robert Adderholt. He has served for 12 terms in Congress, representing Alabama's 4th Congressional District. In addition to serving as House Co-Chair of the Congressional Coalition on Adoption. In the 115th Congress, he introduced an amendment to protect faith-based adoption. Representative Adderholt said that this amendment, which passed the committee, addressed two serious problems currently facing our nation. First, he identified the opioid epidemic that has caused the number of children in foster care across America to skyrocket. And second, he noted that several states and localities across the country are not allowing religious organizations, such as Catholic Charities, to operate child welfare agencies. The reason for this is simply because they, based on their religious convictions, seek to place every child with both a mother and a father. He emphasized that the amendment would encourage states to include all experienced and licensed child welfare agencies so that children are placed in caring, loving homes where they can thrive. We need more support for these families and children in crisis, not less. We couldn't agree more. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Adderholt. Well, good morning. Thank you, Emily. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. And have a chance to um, focus a little bit on adoption this morning. Uh, and um, uh, a perfect day to have an event like this. There's not a lot going on in Capitol Hill today. So um, it's, uh, we need some more excitement. But no, seriously, um, 
when you look at things that really matter, um, uh, the things that we're talking about here is utmost importance and uh, will will have a, a great impact. When um, I first learned that about this particular topic, um, and I think the official t- topic is uh, adopting a culture of life and love, my, uh, my thoughts was, uh, yeah, why would you get a member of Congress to talk about life and love? Uh, that's not something that you immediately think of when you uh, when you think about members of Congress and probably he'd look especially look into Congress itself uh, for life and love and probably a hundred percent of Americans would agree with that. But um, I very much appreciate the invitation to uh, be with you this uh, morning and to uh, talk about this uh, culture of life and love, um, where it comes from, and the role that definitely uh, public policy can play uh, in in that. Um, our belief, uh, our ideals, and uh, the very way of being, the very ideas of life are really rooted in the way that uh, we're raised and uh, the values that are instilled in us by our parents as children uh, are, in most cases, the values that we carry forth in our life from day to day. If someone asks me why I'm pro-life, why I'm pro-family, why I'm pro-child, uh, you can look squarely at the lessons that I actually learned growing up and as, uh, as a small boy. It was at an early age that I learned about the sanctity of life, uh, from Sunday school songs that echoed those themes of we are precious in his sight to little ones belong to him, they are, they are weak, but he is strong. Life was the original gift given to us by the Creator, and it's only God who can take that away. Let me say that I am not na- naive to think and to believe that everyone holds the same strong connection between faith and sanctity of life that I do. But no matter what someone believes or doesn't believe, everyone, I think, deep inside understands that life is precious and that life is a gift. And being pro-life, it also comes with responsibility. It's not enough to say uh, to someone, I'm pro-life, and then just merely walk away. Just say no really isn't enough when it comes to abortion. Women find themselves with an unplanned pregnancy and they need support. Uh, They need assistance. And um, sometimes they just need a loving shoulder to cry on. And sometimes they need help to find adoption resources. So being pro-life means not just pro-birth, but being interested in the welfare of a child during the entire formative years of that child. As I mentioned earlier, I was blessed to be brought up by parents and grandparents who raised me in church and taught me that faith was a big part of our of our day-to-day life. They taught me more by their example and really than their words, but they certainly did by their words as well. They taught me that faith in God and duty to my community and duty to my country were of utmost importance. They raised me to believe in a culture of life and of love, and it was just really an intrinsic part of growing up uh, in the small town that I grew up down in Alabama in the northwest part of the state in Haleville, and I grew up watching my father. He served as a, on the bench as a circuit judge, but he also served part-time as a, a minister, and um, the law of the, the country and the Word of God was really the pillows of our home, and while my um, own children uh, my, actually, I came to Congress uh, at bef- actually before my children were born. Uh, they were born while uh, I was serving in Congress, and because of that, uh, they were raised here in the D.C. area. 
but my wife Caroline and I have sought to instill them those same values and those same principles that I learned in a small town of less than 5,000 people in, in Haleville, Alabama. And uh, we have worked to open uh, their eyes to the, war- to the needs of their community and the world around them. Almost two years ago, I was honored to, to be, uh, sir, or to, I was asked to serve as the Republican co-chair of the Congressional Adoption Caucus in the House of Representatives. And um, that caucus uh, is the largest bipartisan, bicameral caucus on Capitol Hill. And I'm incredibly proud of the work that the, that the coalition is doing and also that the Institute is doing on a day-to-day basis to promote these policies and outreach on adoption-related issues. Uh, but they do more than that. They also uh, have programs that, such as reaching out to older children who are in foster care and allowing them to come to Capitol Hill and have internships. And uh, when I was asked to uh, serve in this role as the co-chair of the Republican Caucus, uh, I um, you know, was very happy to do so. And it's a, a bit odd in, in my role because both of our children are biological children. We don't have adoptive children. Uh, some of the co-chairs do. But I think regardless of whether you have adoptive children or whether you have uh, biological children, adoption is something we can all get behind and we can all support. This month is especially big for the caucus uh, and uh, for the coalition as uh, we will celebrate and as we are celebrating and recognizing National Adoption Month. Uh, One of the things that will be going on this week will be the uh, big adoption gala uh, that we will uh, have here in the Washington, uh, D.C. area and uh, where we recognize many of the people who have been really uh, angels in adoption that have really uh, stepped up to the plate and really gone beyond the call of duty. And one of the um, main goals is to really just raise awareness uh, of the millions of unparented children, not only in the United States, but in the world. And that's that's one distinction I want to make because I think it's important that uh, we sometimes think that there's only children here in the United States that need to be adopted. And I'm of the uh, viewpoint that, yes, there are children here in the United States that need to be adopted, but there are children literally around the world that need to be adopted and uh, that uh, are looking for a home as well. And I think there, there are room for both of those. Unparented children, whether they be babies, whether they be toddlers, whether they be uh, teenagers, whatever their, their situation in life, they're born, sometimes they're born with disabilities, and some of them are born uh, abused by their parents. Uh, some of them have lost their parents to opioids uh, and other addictions. And some have just lost their parents to natural, natural disasters. Uh, I was able to see that firsthand when I was able to go down to Haiti uh, back um, a few years ago. Um, and it was a few years after the uh, 2010 earthquake with the Congressional Adoption Caucus. Uh, Chelsea, who's with us uh, this uh, morning, uh, helped uh, organize that trip. And uh, she was with us as well on that trip. So you really get to see firsthand that... Uh, the needs are not only here in the United States, but the needs are also very great around the world. There are over 437 children in the foster care system in the United States. And as Emily mentioned a little bit earlier, over 125 of them are waiting for families to be to adopt them. 65% of the children in foster care in the United States are aged 10 and younger. Each year, nearly 20,000 kids age out of foster care system without ever being adopted. 20% of that group will become homeless at 18 years of age. 
when they age out of the program. And what's even more startling is uh, that 97% of them will never graduate from college. 30 to 50% of foster parents actually leave the every year leave the foster care system. That is fueled in part by the opioid crisis that has, and um, there has been a dramatic uh, increase of children that are entering the state's custody because of it. The number of cases of children entering the foster care system due to parental drug use has more than doubled since the year 2000. The number of children in foster care rose for five consecutive years. However, 2018 was the first year that the numbers that finally began to decrease, and uh, certainly that is, a, that is a bright spot. But let that sink in. That's a lot of numbers that paint a very dreary picture. Uh, but still, as you're talking about today, there's reason for hope. For over 200 years, faith-based programs have cared for these children that are in need and worked to find them safe and loving homes. As a matter of fact, foster families uh, who work with the faith-based programs stay in the system two to three years longer on average than others do. An overwhelming number of people, 82% in one study, say that the support of their faith community was a very factor in their ability to be a successful foster parent. Children deserve to be, to be served by more agencies, not fewer agencies, who want to help find, help find families for them. These families and these children are in crisis, uh, deserve nothing less. That's why the news that came out just uh, about a week or so ago, a week to 10 days ago, is so critically important. Uh, I uh, got a call from the uh, uh, Deputy uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services um, at, uh, in the Trump administration, um, and they um, wanted to let me know that they're putting the needs of these vulnerable children first by reversing the Obama administration decision that crippled the role of faith-based organization in foster care and adoption. And um, when you actively exclude willing organizations whose really faith is at the heart of those missions, the uh, Obama administration really hurt children who were most in need of, prote of protection. So in its place, the Trump administration is proposing new rules that will allow faith-based providers to continue to serve their communities in a manner that is consistent with their religious beliefs and in turn offering new hope to children who are most in need of being adopted into a culture of life and a culture of love, a culture that's at the very heart of our faith-based providers. But uh, again, I want to, um, in conclusion, just say that I appreciate uh, the Heritage Foundation hosting this event today uh, and all of the other groups that are participating to make this happen. Uh, because truly, November, as I say, is Adoption Awareness Month, but is one of those issues that uh, I think so many of us take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's something that it's a small thing that just the awareness of this program out there, there's so many families who really are trying to adopt. I think we should make it easier rather than make it more difficult. Of course, we want the programs to be safe for the children. We want them to make sure that they are in a good place, but at the same time, we don't want to make it so difficult and so burdensome on the families that uh, it's prohibitive for them to adopt children, especially those who are really wanting to adopt and really can provide a great home for, for these children. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to come uh, join me this morning and to uh, share with you a few thoughts. Uh, if, um, 
the Adoption Caucus or the Adoption Institute can never be of help to anyone. As I say, I, I, I'm the privilege to serve as the Republican co-chair of that group, and we, uh, I, you know, we are there to do everything we can to try to make sure that policy and also uh, adoption process is as easy as possible. And uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or may reach out to my office. So again, thank you again for the invitation to be here. I uh, hope your uh, the rest of your uh, conversations go well in this. Any uh, uh, thing that uh, would be helpful to the caucus and to the institute, uh, I, we would be happy to receive it. And uh, like, thank you for your work on a day-to-day -day basis. And may God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Catherine Lopez from the National Review Institute, and I just want to welcome our panelists up to the, the stage here. Thank you all for being here today. And so um, we, we have here um, uh, Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who has been um, reporting and, and doing analysis like no one else on these issues of, of uh, adoption and foster care, Herbie Newell and Monsi Alvarado, and each one of us, uh, each one of the panelists. Um, I want to start by asking you to um, to give your assessment of what's going on here, Naomi, from your analytical reporting point of view, Herbie, from your front lines ministry point of view, and Monsi from the religious freedom point of view that's drawn you in to be an advocate on these issues and in a way I don't think you expected. Um, so Naomi, if you would take a few minutes to, to, uh, to give your opening thoughts. Sure. Well, thanks, Catherine, and uh, thank you to the Heritage Foundation and the National Review Institute for hosting uh, this event today. Um, so I guess I would like to, uh, I think there are a lot of people in the audience who know uh, kind of a particular part of the, um, let's say, the child welfare life cycle. Um, but, uh, but for those of you who are watching at home and for those of you who are uh, kind of interested in the whole picture, I'd like to kind of provide you with a little bit of a walkthrough. Um, so I, I think where many of us know that uh, the child welfare situation starts is with a call uh, to a hotline. Often those come from mandated reporters. Uh, those include, of course, uh, teachers, psychologists, pediatricians, uh, people who are close to the children who see some evidence that a child might need to be removed from a home or that an investigation is warranted. Um, these child abuse hotlines, particularly in our major cities, are completely overwhelmed. Uh, they receive tens of thousands of calls uh, each year, and uh, often we don't have enough uh, information available to the people answering those calls uh, to give them a good idea of what should be done next uh, for a child. Um, then we are often sending people uh, to these homes who often don't have a great deal of expertise. Uh, they're often young. They often don't know the job that they signed up for when they volunteered to work for Child Protective Services. And I uh, use the word volunteer sometimes because uh, we, do, we don't pay them very much, it's true, and we give them too much work. Um, but I also don't think that we are recruiting the right people for this job. Uh, we're often recruiting people who say that they're interested in putting families back together, which is, of course, a great thing for them to want to do. Um, but the initial investigation, uh, we are actually often looking for them to do something more akin to law enforcement or police investigation, and we don't... Um, 
uh, tell them that up front. Uh, one sort of area that I think we could do uh, use kind of some improvement on, uh, I've seen a lot of promising work in the field of predictive analytics to try to figure out uh, which cases uh, need to be most urgently investigated, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more uh, maybe later in the panel. Um, there's a lot of opposition to uh, the work of predictive analytics because people think it's going to be like minority report and that we're going to uh, try, try to read people's minds and figure out what they're going to do ahead of time to their children, uh, but also because of the racial disparities that people think it will produce in child welfare outcomes. And to get to kind of the title of this panel, uh, that is, I think, one of the uh, ideological factors that is preventing us from having a better child welfare system. There's a great uh, misunderstanding about uh, the role that race plays in our child welfare system, and I think we need to uh, work on educating the public about that in order to understand how to improve the situation. Um, so the first thing that I will just say about that is that the racial disparities in this country start long before child welfare gets involved. Um, most importantly, I think in this uh, framework, they start in family structure. And unfortunately, uh, because family structure uh, influences so greatly child abuse and neglect, um, I think you're about 10 times as likely to be abused as a child if you have a non-relative male living in the home, uh, that that is where we need to think about our efforts uh, more than trying to correct them much later in the system. Um, so then I will kind of try to bring us uh, more toward the area of foster care and adoption. Um, after, of course, a child is removed from a home and as people have alluded to already today, uh, drugs is one of the driving factors. I would say it is the driving factor. If you go around the country and interview foster parents about why the child has come into their care, I would say in something like 80 to 90% of the cases they estimate, um, it has to do with substance abuse of parents. Um, we are not being honest about that. There are many states that actually report zero cases uh, of substance abuse being the driving factor in removing a child from a home. Um, you will hear commonly people say, oh, it's actually poverty that is driving our child welfare system, uh, or it is homelessness that is driving our child welfare system. Uh, neglect is by and large a category that these days is used to, I think, cover for uh, drug abuse. And uh, it is very, very hard to get away from that fact. And unfortunately, we don't have a solution for addiction in this country, or certainly not a foolproof one. And the result is that uh, children are going back and forth between parents, uh, biological parents, and multiple foster homes because we are continuing to give uh, the biological parents a chance to get clean, um, and I think there is a good argument to do that. But uh, one difficult question I think we all have to face is how many chances should a parent get to get clean, particularly when a child is quite young and we're talking about their chance to attach or bond with uh, any uh, you know, secure adult figure. Um, then I just want to turn to foster care. I know uh, our other panelists are going to talk a lot more about the work on the ground that faith-based organizations are doing in foster care and adoption. But I will just say I think two of the 
revelations, let's say, that uh, religious-based groups have reached in recent years are so important uh, in the recruitment and the retention of foster parents. The first is uh, much more narrow casting. I think there has been a realization that putting up a picture on the nightly news of a child um, and expecting people to call up is not often an effective way to do recruitment. And we've realized that in the kind of marketing of everything else in this country. And it's nice that we kind of got around to thinking that way about foster care, too. So I think the fact that these uh, churches and faith-based organizations are sort of saying directly from the pulpit, you know, there are six kids in this zip code tonight who need a home. What are you going to do about it is much more effective. The The second thing, and I think this is overwhelmingly important, is the support for foster parents. About 40% of foster parents quit within the first year of signing up. Those are people who have actually gone over that hurdle and made that determination to bring a child into their home. Um, And often we have no idea why they quit. Um, I mean, I have lots of (laughs) theories, but for instance, in Massachusetts uh, in the last five years, about 2,000 foster parents quit uh, and nobody at DCFS even asked them why. Um, So I think we are, uh, in my experience, when I talk to foster parents, one of the things that is the biggest problem for them is the system. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more afterwards. Over and over again, I hear from parents, uh, it's not the children, it's the adults who are driving me crazy. Um, And when people ask me, I am not a foster parent myself, but when people ask me, like, well, do you think I should foster? Uh, The first question I I ask them sometimes facetiously is, uh, well, let me ask you this. How many hours a week do you think you'd be willing to spend at the DMV? Uh, because that is the experience uh, for many of these foster parents just dealing with the court systems, uh, caseworkers, um, and and kind of the overall bureaucracy. Um, and again, I think this is an area where faith-based organizations have played a very important role in helping to guide parents uh, and support them through this process, uh, which sometimes they need even more than the support uh, for, uh, for handling children uh, who have been abused or neglected. Um, so I've uh, I spent a lot of time traveling around this country. I am uh, deeply disturbed by uh, the bureaucracy, the policies, uh, some, some increasingly bad policies that are being passed at the state level uh, on these issues. Um, but I'm also deeply hopeful uh, by the kind of innovations that have happened in nonprofit, uh, particularly faith-based organizations um, that seem to me like they hold great promise for, for fixing this problem. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi. And I should have um, mentioned that you're a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm so grateful that AI thinks this is an important issue, these 12 child welfare issues. Me too. Um, Her- Herbie Newell from Lifeline uh, Children's Services, can you talk a bit about your this the state of, of things as you see them? Yeah, so I certainly am grateful to be a part of this panel uh, representing Lifeline Children's Services, and we are a uh, uh, really a, a, an organization in child welfare from a faith-based Christian perspective, caring for orphans around the world as well as kids in foster care here in the United States. And I think the biggest thing that, that I would want you to know is that our faith communities are aggressively doing good uh, in so many different levels uh, on child welfare, and we desperately need our faith communities to be a, a driver in so many of those things. And so even as I start to think, and, and we talk about foster care, there are children in foster care, and, and children in foster care uh, are, are bringing a lot of loss. Really, any child that has been separated from their biological family are bringing in incredible 
incredible, incredible loss. And to think that any individual, a husband, a wife, a family can do this alone is very short-sighted. Our children do not need just individual families, but they need communities of people. And I believe that the community of faith, uh, particularly the Christian faith too, as I represent, uh, is needed to be aggressively good in these communities. And and I think because, uh, as we've talked about, it's a hard job to be a foster parent, and it brings in a lot of, uh, of, of sorrow. You really are stepping into the suffering of others when you join to be a foster parent, and you need help. You need someone that can come alongside of you. And so we don't need to just encourage our communities of faith just to be foster families, but to encourage other foster families and to come around and, and, and really help the system in that way. As I look around the world, uh, it's the, the church that has led many times in caring for orphans around the world, not just here in our own country, but, uh, but in other countries. And, and we need to continue to allow the church to do that. We need to continue to allow ways for the church to do that. Uh, but as I start, the, the biggest thing that I believe that the church and faith-based communities bring is a system of support for foster families and for those who are aggressively trying to engage with foster children in our country. The second thing really hitting on foster care that I believe faith-based communities bring is reconciliation. You know, the biggest thing I believe that we need in our country is a better system for reconciliation. We don't need to just be moving so quickly to removing kids from their, uh, their families of origin, placing them in foster care, and then getting permanency through adoption before we truly look at reconciliation with their families of origin. And we need to come alongside of those families. Many times these families are broken. Um, and as Naomi said, many times it's because of poverty or it's because of neglect. It's because of, of systems and cycles of abuse. And I believe that our faith communities can come and wrap around these biological families to, to help them, to, to help them get on their feet, to, to bring them to a place of support uh, so that they can receive their children uh, back in their homes. And then uh, also, as I, as I just think about so many that are caring for children, uh, the need in our country and around the world for children and adoption is not honestly uh, the sweet infant that's just been born or the child that's cuddly and cute. You know, it's children that have come through a lot of trauma. It's children who've come through a lot of pain. It's children who have many times been institutionalized or have jumped from foster system to foster system. And these children really are bringing in uh, a lot of hurt. And, and I, I have seen through 16 and a half years at Lifeline uh, that many times it's the church that's leading the way and saying that we want to care for these children that, that maybe the culture has labeled as less desirable. Maybe they're leading the way and saying we'll care for teenagers, we'll care for uh, children that are harder to place. And, and certainly that's not saying that outside the church that folks aren't doing that as well. It's just saying I've seen aggressively the church step up. And then I, I guess just because we are talking about ideology as well, I think it would be very short-sighted for us to uh, bar the door for any organization or for any group uh, that's following the law, that's doing good for our children, not to be able to participate. And so any laws, any strategies uh, that are aggressive uh, to keep out faith-based 
or other child welfare providers who are doing a good job following the laws and taking care ultimately of children, I think are very short-sighted. We have a big problem in our country and we have a big problem around the world. And we need as many people to come to the table to help with that as possible. And so uh, as, as we see that, I know that in the states that we work with, uh, our counties, our states tell us consistently that they can go and do drives in churches. They can do, uh, they can do recruitment events. Uh, but they never have as much success as faith-based agencies do when they're able to go into their own constituents and, and ask them to participate in child welfare. And so uh, we, we need that. Uh, we need faith-based agencies who are allowed to be, uh, to, who are allowed to live out their values, who are allowed to do what they do, not in to infringe on others' values, but to do within their context the values that they have been called to do. And so I think this is an important conversation. There's so much more that I know that we will unpack and say, but that's just uh, really the first thing is to say, I have seen firsthand uh, the Christian church, uh, the communities of faith do things that are aggressively good, not just in bringing permanence for children, but also in bringing reconciliation back to biological families. Well, thank you, Herbie. You've teed this up for Monsi quite well. Monsi Alvarado is the executive director of the Beckett Fund. And um, tell us how you're defending the faith-based agencies and their ability to operate. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, What you said in the beginning is true. This was definitely a surprise for me. I never thought that I would be um, looking into adoption and foster care so deeply and also advocating for the faith-based agencies that are being basically shut out. Um, for political reasons, not necessarily for an ideological reason. So let's take a step back. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a nonprofit law firm that defends religious freedom for people of all faiths. We like to say that we defend people A through Z. Uh, Anglican to Zoroastrian, we worked really hard for that Z case to be able to say that. Um, But because we have that perspective about religion being a good for society, religion being uh, that that peace that allows us to see human beings as deserving of dignity and, um, and protected by the Constitution, not necessarily from a ministry perspective, but from a faith-positive perspective. Uh, we, we see things a little bit differently, and we see that government coercion and go- government trying to step in and do things that faith-based groups do well is not necessarily the best thing um, for our society and, and for our communities, our local communities. Religious individuals are pillars of civil society, and we should allow them to have that, um, that interaction and that participation in, in, in American society. Um, I agree with a lot of what Naomi was saying about access, about um, data, and and about some of the reasons that the government gives for wanting to control this space. Um, but I definitely see something a little bit different in the way that they're treating faith-based groups, and that is that it's politically motivated. Um, in, in Beckett's experience, the two clients that we have, one in Philadelphia and one in Michigan, and I'm so grateful to have Chad and Melissa Buck here, um, who we represent in Michigan, um, who can tell you their story themselves. Uh, that that uh, desire to get Catholic social services and Catholic charities out of the foster care and adoption um, space has everything to do with not liking what they believe about religion and what their faith traditions teach and nothing to do with how well they do their work. Faith-based groups have been doing foster and adoption care work for over 200 years, much longer than the government ever has. Their placement, their permanence, 
um, data is so much better than state-based agencies. Um, they, are, they are more likely to recruit a family, three times more likely to get a family to think about adopting, two times more likely to get a family to actually adopt. That's 50%. That's not nothing. Um, and it's definitely an important piece to look at when you're thinking about retention. Kids going from family to family to family to family only adds to that pain and that struggle. And there's a great comedian who was on one of these Netflix shows talking about her experience in foster care and how the only thing that she wanted was to stop living out of a garbage bag. Children living out of garbage bags. These are, I mean, they're necessary stories to tell, and I'm grateful that we have these cases that allow us to elevate these issues into the greater space and into the elite media so that everyone can start talking about them. But it's, it's a crisis of dignity, and it's a crisis of whether we're willing to open up our homes and open up our communities for these children. And the religious impulse is a real thing. It's not just something that you feel like you want to do. People who are motivated by faith are motivated by something that compels them to do something good for someone else. They're motivated by love in, in the philosophical sense of it, not just in the emotional sense of it. And that's a duty. And it's a duty that the Constitution protects. It's a duty that our civil rights laws also protect. Your ability to live according to what you believe and to serve your community according to what you believe. And the moment that we start to shut that out, we start to erode at the foundations of this country. And we start to erode at our capacity to come alongside the government to come alongside other groups and do good. Uh, so that's really the take that we have on this. And we are grateful that we've got two cases, one currently waiting to be taken up by the Supreme Court and another that just received a great win in Michigan. It's the first time ever that a court affirms that faith-based agencies do have a place in this. We've seen agencies shut down all over the country. This is something that's been happening for about 11 years, where people have just decided, I can't work in this space. It's going to be too hard. I don't want to have this fight over what I believe about human sexuality in public. You don't need to have that fight. We just need to have the government acknowledge that according with our American tradition, faith-based groups have a place in our society. If I can just continue with, me, with you for a second, Monsi. So what is your, your, do you have a sense of hope that you're going to be able to win? Maybe you have to say that as the executive director. But, but I mean, do you, do you actually see concrete signs of hope? Um, I definitely obviously do. Obviously, the win helped. Absolutely. The, the legal win is a fantastic sign of hope. Um, the signals that we received when we put in an emergency petition to the Supreme Court, we got three justices to say that this was really an important issue that they wanted to look at. The fact that they just took our case and are reconferencing it. So they're taking a, a moment to see if this is really a case they want to take. Um, these are all signs that these are important issues that everyone is taking seriously. And the fact that you're here talking about them, I'm grateful that you have this platform. The fact that we actually are bringing this into um, broad daylight and saying, we've got a problem that we can solve. 400,000 children in the United States of America that need homes. Plenty of homes that are recruited at a high rate by Christian groups. Why, when we announce a crisis, would we get rid of the groups that are recruiting and retaining families? Seems wild to me. Herbie, how much is this religious freedom issue um, uh, an issue for, for families you, you deal with? Uh, is, it, is it discouraging people? I don't, I don't think it's discouraging people per se, but I, and I don't think it's necessarily affecting the families 
on the the front lines initially until the organization that they've worked with for so long is being threatened from existence. And so it's probably something they're not thinking about in their normal discourse. Uh, I will say, though, families do tend to prefer those organizations that that have the same values that they they do to to work with because there's a there's a fear in child welfare and there's a fear from faith-based families that could there be a day where the government decides because of my own faith my own children are going to be removed and so uh, there's such a, a, a process to become a foster adoptive family that you are you're literally stripping your life bare you're showing everything that you have you're showing all of your cards you're allowing people to come into your home when you have a foster child in your home to review what you're doing how you're doing it looking at your other children and so there is a great fear from foster families even that will I be hampering uh, my biological children by opening myself up to such scrutiny to the state. And so to have the ability to go and work with a faith-based agency that knows what they believe, that believes what I believe, and is going to lead me through that process, that is so reassuring to these families. And, and, and I think in the same way, let's just say it too, like there are those who don't have faith and they don't want to be discriminated because of their lack of faith, and they want to be able to enter into the system, and we give them avenues to enter into the system. And so I think we, we need to make sure that the faith-based community can do something. And, and, I, and I, I love what was said about that the church has been doing this longer than the state, and there's a, actually a quote from AD 125 from Aristides, and he said this about the church. And this just shows since AD 125 we have history that the church has been helping aggressively vulnerable children. It said they do not worship strange gods, and they go their all own way in modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not a found among them, and they love one another from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has, give to him who has not without boasting. And so we have the, the church, the early Christian church from 125 AD, we know was doing something aggressively for widows and orphans. And the church still needs to be called to do that. But I think some of the many times, the best way to call them to do that is from those faith leaders from within and from those organizations. And I've made this analogy before, and, and I'll make it again. You know, we don't necessarily need Robert Adderholt going to run for DNC chair for the Democratic National Committee. He's not going to win because he's not going to be able to convalesce Democrats together because he's not a Democrat. In the same way, we don't need Nancy Pelosi running for RNC chairman because she's not going to gather the Republicans together. We need faith leaders who can operate in their faith to gather together people of faith to aggressively do something good for children in need. And we don't need to limit their ability to do that. So to your original question, Yes, it does affect those families. They're not thinking about it until their agency uh, or to the organization they work with is being threatened from existence. But the reason they seek faith-based agencies and agencies that agree with them is because there's that comfort of saying, when I open up and when I strip myself bare and when I do something aggressively good, I'm not going to have to be looking over my back for someone who doesn't think that the way I operate my family is the way I should. Naomi, as as you know, part of the reason that I've started focusing so much more on adoption and foster care is it drives me crazy that the mainstream media only pays attention to the issue when it's some outrage case, some scandal. Um, and frequently, even conservative um, media outlets only pay attention when it's a religious freedom clash. Um, in in your reporting and, and talking and observing and, and um, 
do you see any signs of hope that there there's some common ground that ideology is not going to strangle us from working together? Um, because when we hear these religious freedom issues, there seems like there should be some some room for reasonable compromise. I also look at states like New York and Virginia that have been so radicalized on on abortion, just double down on, on abortion. This just seems like such an opportunity to talk about the kids we can all agree on, as the congressman said. We can all support adoption, right? Can we all support adoption? Um, I have very mixed feelings on that. I, I think um, maybe like a lot of conservatives and liberals, um, I've begun to look at the 90s as kind of this time of bipartisan support for reasonable issues that seems like it might as well have been 200 years ago. Um, you never uh, thought you'd be longing for Bill Clinton I know, again. but, you know, <laughs> these days. Um, I, I, I point to two pieces of legislation that happened in the 90s because I, I want people to understand just how far we've uh, – kind of left that consensus in the dust. Uh, the two pieces of legislation that I think were very important were the Adoption Safe Families Act, which placed a timeline on how long kids could be in foster care. It said that if you're a foster child who's been in care for uh, more than 15 of the last 22 months, a state is supposed to move to terminate parental rights. And there was a big debate in Congress about this. Some people wanted five years, some people wanted six months. Um, but Congress came together and said, look, we need to place a reasonable limit on this because kids should not have to be um, uh, left in foster care indefinitely, living out of a garbage bag, as Monsi said. Um, unfortunately, that is a law that is regularly flouted across the country. We, I regularly run into, talk to, interview foster parents whose kids have been uh, in the court system and in and out of care uh, for, you know, three years, four years, five years at a time. Um, the second piece of legislation that I thought was so important was the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, uh, which said we can't discriminate on the basis of race when we're placing children for foster care and adoption. Again, this is a law that is regularly flouted across the country and a lot of activists think that the most important thing is placing child with a family uh, who matches their skin color. Um, and so uh, we have, we have again, left that consensus in the, in the dust, uh, the consensus of the 1990s. And when I look out now, um, I see laws being uh, debated in states and passed by states, which seem to suggest that, um, that adoption is really not something that we can all agree on. Uh, and um, New York State actually both uh, the Assembly and the Senate uh, passed a bill over the summer uh, that said um, parents whose rights have already been officially terminated, a process which usually takes more than two years, and these are parents who uh, really have severely neglected or abused their children, um, the bill says that they should be able to go back to court to petition for visitation with these children, even if the children have already been adopted by another family. So the fact that we have two houses in this in this in New York State uh, that that where people came to this conclusion, um, it's gone the governor's desk. I I have no idea, frankly, whether he will sign it or not. A, a number of family court judges have, needless to say, weighed in, saying this is completely ridiculous. I have just 
you know, spent more than two years hearing these cases, the idea that you're then going to bring these parents back in uh, and then and violate the rights of of adoptive parents who we who are real parents um, and and who you know these are really their children and to say that their freedom uh, to raise these children and to bring them around adults uh, you know who they choose to bring them around should be impeded uh, by parents whose rights have been terminated you know is is outrageous um, but but increasingly I think that's where this conversation is going and so uh, so no I mean on on reasons that you know include religious liberty but are not limited to that I am not hopeful about the consensus in this country on adoption and foster care herbie how first of all just practically how how do you why and how do you do both domestic and international? And um, and on the international scene, what do you want people to know about what what families, what children are actually facing right now? Yeah, and including the lower numbers, right, of of adoptions happening internationally. Right. So to take those questions, I, I do want to just say one thing on what Naomi said is I think a lot of what we need though in this discourse is trust and dignity. Uh, for each other. You know, we've come away from trusting one another in this country, and I think that's why things have gotten so polarized. We believe that if our ideology is not the same, then we are all of a sudden against one another. And so if someone is in the room with me and, and they don't share the same ideology, well, then they must be aggressively against me. We have got to get away from that. We can have two different ideologies and still have dignity for one for another. And so one of the of debates that we even got to in the state that uh, I live in, which was Alabama, was a law that was not trying to bar the door for anyone to adopt or to foster, but it was m merely a law to say that faith-based communities should have the right to operate and that churches should have the right to get engaged. And the, the number one person against uh, the bill was the Human Rights Coalition. And, you know, against a lot of popular opinion, I invited the Human Rights Coalition into our office to see what we did. Uh, we walked around the halls. We talked about what we did. I, I let the, the president, I introduced her to our people. Uh, and I treated her with dignity. And by the end of the day, she, you know, she said, I have higher powers and I can't go cold on this issue, but I'm not going to be as aggressive on this issue because I understand what you are trying to accomplish now. And you know, a, a lot of that is we didn't change. I didn't change her ideology. She didn't change my ideology. But you know what? We came together with dignity and trust to say we're both in this for something that is, is good, but we're not against each other. And I, I think that's one of the things that's got to guard our discourse. And, and as you even ask about domestic and international you know, there's a there's a big need around the world, and we believe as an organization that the community of faith that we represent, the Christian believers, uh, that there's something for them to get engaged in around the world. Uh, there is a way that they can do something internationally. There's a way that they can do something domestic, and not everyone is called to do both. Not not every family is organized in such a way that that they can be a foster family. Not every uh, family is organized in such a way that they can adopt internationally. But there is something that we believe uh, biblically that every Christian is called to do, whether that's to aggressively do something internationally, not even adoption. Maybe it's caring for orphans that are, are uh, endangered. Maybe it's caring for kids that are living on the streets by helping them with job skills and life skills. Domestically, maybe that is in reunification of, foster of children uh, with their biological families. And so we want to provide opportunities. And then to end briefly on the international, you know, unfortunately, 
uh, I believe, and I know it's not an extremely popular uh, opinion, but I do believe that we've acted responsibly in some regards overseas with uh, adoption. I think there's a lot of times we have gone in with the right that we have the right to adopt. Um, and, and again, I think it goes back to even where I started and how this do- discourse is here. We don't go into international governments with a lot of dignity and respect. And we don't go into those offices going, how can we help? We go presuming that we know how to help. And I think that's what we need to do as well, even in our own country, is as churches, as communities of faith, we don't need to just barge into our county office and say, I'm here to help and here's what I'm going to do. But we need to go have a discourse with those leaders and say, how can I help? What can I be doing? What are the needs that you have in our county? And how can we be doing something aggressively about that? And so, you know, narrowing that back down, uh, because of some of the the problems that we've had internationally because of some of the presuppositions that we've made of how we can help and what we can do and the rights that we've taken, there has been uh, an outflow of policy to try to police that. And that policy has become overburdensome. That's where I agree. It has become overburdensome. We have to acknowledge that there was a problem that needed to be fixed, uh, but unfortunately it became overpoliticized. And inter-country adoption is still very much needed. There are kids around the world that need uh, the homes from the United States and be brought into the United States through adoption. And we've got to make sure that we do two things. One, that we are self-policing and keeping accountability to make sure that those processes are safe, that those processes are legal, and that they're in the best interest of children. But second, we don't need to overly police and overly drive policy so much that the good organizations that are aggressively trying to do good can no longer operate because it's become so burdensome. Monsi, um, I share uh, some of Naomi's definite frustrations and, and worries about the future here. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, one of my hopes is that cases like yours are this huge educational opportunity, right? And to see not just that there's, there's a conflict here, um, but that they're, to shine a light on the, some of the beautiful women and families in Philadelphia, in the Michigan case. Um, is there any preemptive work um, that can be done in that realm to avoid a situation like you have in Philadelphia right now, where really you can't explain it, understand it as anything other than ideological, right? Because there was no actual complaint. It was just, no, we don't agree with your views, so we're going to stop this now. Um, Do you you share the the thought that this is an opportunity, and, and is there work that we can be doing to prevent future Philadelphias. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you that in Philadelphia, it's it's a shame, um, Pennsylvania completely at the, at the state level as well. It's, it's a shame because there has never been a complaint against a, a religious agency. No, no couple, no LGBTQ couple has come to an agency and said, you are not serving me. So we spent a lot of time talking about these issues, yeah. and yet frequently there are not actual complaints. There are not actual complaints. No one's actually not being served or and, not having access to children, right? And we, we've had discussions with Walter Olson at the Cato Institute, um, who doesn't agree on traditional marriage, um, as, as some of us may, um, but 
but he is so adamant that we need more, not less, people Absolutely. available to be foster and adoptive parents. And so I think that's where the opportunity is. It's in building bridges. It's in bringing people in to see what you do and educating ourselves. Because we used to live in community. We used to know our neighbors really well. We used to know that, oh, so-and-so isn't the best person for you. It's not that they don't want to work with you. They're not the person for a disabled child. They are not the person for a Hispanic child. They're not the person to understand all of these different nuances that are so important in building your family or in creating a really beautiful, safe, and um, loving space for a new child to come into your home. Who helps you build that? You need all the flowers in the garden and you need them to all be completely different, different colors, different styles, different expertise, right? I think we're all realizing that. We thought that foster and adoption care was this cookie cutter space. Government identifies a child, find a family, place child, done. No, it turns out it's much more complicated than that and that we need so much more as we discover different ways to work with children with autism, children with learning disabilities, we need that expertise. And that only comes from learning from each other. It only comes from knowing that there are other people that are doing this better than I am and going in and asking them how and forgetting that maybe there are some small differences. There are some things that we um, don't agree on that shouldn't stop us from the greater good, right? So I'm, I'm hopeful about the conversation. I do think that in our cases, there's real um, animus there. There's a real... Um, hatred for the other person that is driving this conflict um, and a decision that they're not good enough to be a part of this system or to be a part of the solution. That's the, the sad part. Um, in Michigan, you had a wonderful law that protected faith-based agencies where the government had come together and decided we want to protect these groups because they're an important part of what we do. They're a part of the solution, not the problem. And the attorney general ran on the platform that she wanted to get rid of these groups because of their religious beliefs. Not because they're not good, not because they don't do great work, not because they don't have great placement capacity or wraparound services, they have all of that. She, because she didn't like them. And it was the same thing in Philadelphia. I don't like Archbishop Shepu and what he believes. I don't think he's like Pope Francis. These are real things in, in the complaints. You can't deny that there is animus and discrimination going on here and it's not on the side of the agencies. It's on the side of the political individuals who have decided that they don't want to work with these groups and they want to bar them from society. So I think elevating the good that these groups are doing and showing people the fantastic returns, the fantastic ROI that they are, and then also the deep value that they have, um, because they're not only using um, government resources. This isn't about funding. No one's making a profit here, helping children and bringing you know, food to a parent that has been with a child at a doctor's office for eight hours. That's not something that someone is paying for. That's something you do out of the goodness of your heart because you believe in that other person and you want them to succeed. Yeah. I just wanted to, to add one of the things that I think uh, kind of connections that we're missing. A lot of people talk about the number of placements in foster care. And one of the reasons that we have a high number of placements in foster care is that there's no slack in the system. There's a shortage of foster families. And what happens in a child welfare agency when they're trying to place a child um, is that they have to sort of say, well, this is the only house we have available. So that home may have said, uh, I don't want to take multiple children. And you sort of push on them. Well, 
well, I have these two kids. Could you just take them, you know, for a couple of weeks until I find somebody else? Well, that turns into another placement, that couple of weeks. Um, or you have another family uh, who might be able to, you only have one family in your county who is able to take a special needs child, but that family already has someone living with them. So then you say, oh, well, we'll just place them with this other family that's not equipped to take special needs kids just on a temporary basis until that other home opens up. If you have no slack in the system, if you have what you need is not just, you know, uh, the exact number of, of beds that you have for children. You need a lot more than that in order to make sure that you can find the appropriate placement for a child. And only by finding the most appropriate placement are you, are you sort of able to say that child should be able to stay in that home for as long as is necessary and even possibly be adopted, but certainly as long as their stay in foster care lasts. So the idea that at this point where we have this pretty much every state reporting a severe shortage of foster homes to then say we are going to take more away is is going to translate fairly quickly, I think, in a higher number of placements for these children. And everybody is worried about that. Um, I have one last round of questions before we go to the audience, but I'd also like to invite Melissa Buck to just come to the front um, because we're going to hear a few words from, from her. Um, Herbie, and then we'll end with uh, Naomi. Can you, um, for anyone listening to this um, on live stream or, or, or in, the, in the room today, um, wanting to know what can I do to help this situation, right? Because part of the goal of this discussion today is how do we actually change the culture here, right? And so, so Herbie, could you address that? And then, and then Monsi and then Naomi. Yeah, and, and I'll go back to what I said a minute ago. I, I, I think it's having open, honest dialogue with one another. Uh, I think it's going to our state systems, and it's truly asking how can we help. Uh, but then I think it is, too. Uh, and when you say we, do you mean like church by church, local church by church? Local church by local church uh, needs to go. I mean, pastors need to go to their child welfare system and say, how can we aggressively help and do good? And listen. We need to listen to what we're told, and we need to respond in how we are told. Uh, you know, and, and yes, I know that our counties need back drive, backpacks. Doing backpack drives are great, but that's not the only thing they need. And so it can't just be a one-size-fits-all solution. We have to go, we have to listen, and we have to meet the needs. And then I think we need to thank uh, our legislatures when they do something that is helpful. You know, I think a lot of times we lobby and we say, can you do this, can you do that? And then they do it, and we forget to send a thank you note, or we forget to say thank you. We need to be encouraging them as much as we are badgering them for help. Uh, we need to thank them when they do something aggressively good. You know, I, I have the privilege of Robert Adderholt being one of my representatives. And so as he continually follows through on things he promises to do, you know, we have our people send thank yous as much as we do ask them to ha have him respond. So we don't, we do need to ask our representatives and our senators to respond, but we also need to thank them when they are responding uh, and, and to hear from us. They represent the people and they will represent us more clearly when we are or letting them know when they're doing something that is to our benefit as well as when we need them to do something for our benefit. And then I, I guess my word, just because I, I feel like I do represent the evangelical church in a, an extent, is to say this. We need to be humble and we need to be gracious and we need to go uh, with a reproach of we're here to help um, and to, to have dignity and not to be afraid 
and not to go forth with fear, uh, but to go forth with the calling that we've been called to do and to do it uh, with justice and with equity, uh, but with also grace and mercy. And, and I think if, if the church is one of the, the, the best-kept armies of good that we have in our culture and around the world, and we don't need to wait for the right law or the right time or the right place to do something, we need to do it. Because I think even what Naomi is saying is, you can't, if when you go into Philadelphia or when you go into Michigan and you just decide to start shutting down faith-based organizations, it has a ripple effect that is not good for the child welfare system. And that's because we've done something aggressively good. And so we need to go forward and keep doing the works of justice, the works of mer- mercy, and we need to walk humbly as we're doing those things. Because then if we do what we're called to do and we do it with justice and equity and grace, you know, there is a cost to try to get us out of the system because we're already doing uh, what we've been called to do. And so uh, I, I just I think we need to go forward. We need to be thankful. And we need to treat these conversations with dignity and respect. And I might just add in a Catholic context. Um, I, I mentioned the church by church thing. Catholics tend to think more corporately. You know, somebody in the chancery is taking care of this. We really do have to learn from evangelical churches and think, what what are the needs right around us, the families in our parish, that That's that right. kind of thing. Yeah. Monsi? I'll just double up on that point because I think it's important. We all think that we have to be experts on what's going on. It's great to stay engaged. I, I love that when people know what's going on in our cases, and our website is a great resource for that. But I would double down on the fact that these are local issues. Every state is different. Every system is different. And so getting engaged looks different. And coming across faith communities, whether within the Christian community, Catholics and evangelicals, um, going to Muslim and Jewish partners, it's incredible to me that you don't have more resources for Jewish families that want to adopt and foster. You just don't. It's not something that is readily accessible. Um, There is one crisis pregnancy center for Jewish women, one. Um, They're just issues where we can really learn from each other if we care enough to find that person that is interested within our community that doesn't actually share our faith tradition. Naomi? Um, I guess I would close by with this this observation. Um, I think that this is an issue where, unfortunately, the people who are on the front lines of this, that is the foster families, are often in the hardest position when it comes to influencing policy changes um, and and being able to voice their objections. Um, Foster parents call me every week, and they want to tell me their story, but they don't want me to ever use their names. And the reason that they don't want me to use their names is because they are afraid that this will affect the placement of children in their home, that that that, that a child who's in their home could be taken out tomorrow just because a social worker might get mad that they've complained, or that a judge uh, would all of a sudden decide that they are not fit to keep a kid in, her, in their home who's been in their home for a while, or that new children will not be placed in their home because they have been too loud and complaining. And so what I would say is there are a lot of policy changes that need to happen. And as Monzi said, different changes in different states. Um, But people who are not actually doing the fostering need to get involved in this issue and have their voices heard because they are the ones who 
um, maybe this will come off wrong, but have nothing to lose. I mean, they are the ones who can be the loudest because there will be no immediate consequences for them or for children being placed in their homes. And so I guess, you know, to the extent that that's possible, um, to the extent that, you know, even if you are not fostering yourself, if you can find out more about this issue, maybe talk to the people who are fostering and be a voice on their behalf, I think that that could have a lot of influence on the system. And Melissa, thank you so much for what you do and the fact that you're having this religious freedom fight on top of it, right? <laughs> um, save, on top of saving the lives of children along with your husband, Chad. Um, Melissa, why is your case important and why has this all been important? Um, okay, well, first, can I just say preach? Um, <laughs> but my name's Melissa Buck, and my husband, Chad, and I have adopted five special needs kids from St. Vincent Catholic Charities in Lansing, Michigan. So about two years ago, we heard that our agency was coming under fire for holding to their faith. And we were shocked and very confused because our agency recruits more foster parents than any other in our county. St. Vincent's is known for placing sibling groups, minority children, and special needs children at a higher rate than anyone around them. For proof of that, we have all three in our family. Um, they work closely with their foster and adoption families long after their cases close. And, um, well, I guess I guess it's true what you have said, that foster care is hard and it's easy to quit. Um, it's often really isolating. And the court system, I mean, it is very frustrating. But our agency, St. Vincent's, sees this and created a support group for foster and adoptive families, not just from their own agency, but all across our county, including LGBTQ parents, because their support is for everyone. So when we heard that our agency was coming under fire for holding to their deeply held religious beliefs, we could not sit back and allow it to happen. And we've been honored to speak up for our foster and adoptive parents, our agency, and these vulnerable children while bringing attention to the discrimination that St. Vincent's is facing. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thanks. And it, do you, does anybody have any questions? We have time for one or two before I give the floor to Chelsea. Any questions? Oh, oh, sorry, there's a microphone coming to you. One question I have for Mr. Newell is you talked about the importance of not barging into other countries and working to assist with governments. Um, having been adopted from Russia, which has been a very political case, how do we work with countries that are dealing exclusively politically with adoption issues? Yeah, and I think that is where... I come back and say we do need our government to be aggressive as well in going into these countries where there are politically motivated opportunities. You know, even today uh, in the southeast where we work, uh, there is there are children from China right now that are being hosted by families throughout the southeast through our organization. And this is something that the government of China would like to do more of, but they haven't had anyone from our government sit down with them and talk about the systems, and is our government even open to this happening? And so we agreed to kind of be a guinea pig to this, uh, also not knowing 
what would the blowback be from our government? Because there's no, there's no solid regulations right now on hosting. And how do you do hosting? Uh, but we agreed with the Chinese government that we would allow them to do this. So I think we need our State Department to be aggressively, uh, not just trying to regulate. And that's, that's I, I said it briefly, the regu- some regulation was needed. Uh, the regulation now is overly burdensome. And our State Department has taken a posture in over-regulating as, as opposed to being dipl- diplomatic. And there needs to be regulatory parts, but there also needs to be diplomacy that's going out and reaching out. Because uh, let, let's, let's be honest, our children, no matter what faith tradition we come from, what ideology we have, our children are our future. And every, every nation around the world understands that, and we understand that in our own country as well. And so what happens to our children, we are going to aggressively defend that. And, and I know we can look at human rights violations around the world against children, but still at the core, I believe that those nations know that their children are their future. And it's, it's not going to be NGOs and foreign governments that are going to figure this out. It's going to be two governments figuring this out. And so, uh, yes, we need the State Department to go in diplomacy, to sit down with these leaders, and, and not just from a standpoint of how have we messed up, but how can we go forward and do better and, and, and fi- helping find solutions? Because I do feel like at times when our State Department has gone and sat down with other child welfare leaders in other countries, it's more about hearing a laundry list of things that they think we're doing wrong as opposed to being aggressive to say, here are the things we're doing right, and we'd love to continue to do those right and to bring some defense uh, to some of those. Uh, you know, One of the big things right now internationally is post-placement issues, and yes, as American citizens, we've got to do a better job about being honest and, and, and fulfilling our post-placement uh, duties. We also live in a free country where our State Department is not going to call and send Child Protective Services to a home because there's not a post-placement report that's been filled out. And so we need to talk about those complexities, not in the sake that countries are shut down, but to keep those countries open and to, to be more diplomatic. And I believe that's a lot of reasons that some of these countries have been shut down, because the diplomatic chain has been between agencies and governments, not between governments and governments. You know, Monsi mentioned before, we, we thought there was a cookie-cutter approach, but I was struck by um, what Congressman Adelholt said, we actually don't think about these issues on most days, so many of us. And um, that's why I'm so grateful to the Heritage Foundation and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and National Review Institute um, for, for, for coming together and hosting this. I'm so grateful that that AI is, is supporting Naomi and doing what she's doing because it means she floods the zone with reporting and research and her honor, honor your foster mother and father report is, is really important. The reason I, I, I say this is don't let this be if you're, you're here in the room or, or watching this on live stream. Well, you probably have an interest and I know many of you work in, in this field. Um, but take the opportunity of National Adoption Week and Month to, you know, share some of Naomi's stories, to to share Herbie's ministry, to um, make people aware of of the Beckett Fund and what they're doing, to, to show the face of Melissa and Chad Buck, which you can find on the Beckett Fund website, um, and and their children, um, because um, you know. Awareness does actually mean something. There's a reason, you know, multinational corporations have pink ribbons and things because it actually does get people thinking about an issue. Um, so we don't we don't have a colored ribbon, I don't think, for adoption. But but whatever you can do to share some of these resources, um, please do. And with that, I want to thank our panelists and invite Chelsea up to close.
Um, thank you so much, Catherine. When we were brainstorming the idea for um, hosting this panel, um, I basically wrote out all of my favorite people um, and invited them. And there's so many, um, we could have a panel of 10 people. And I, um, I'm just so grateful for each and every one of um, you and your work and your sphere of influence and um, ministry. Um, I just wanted to share a couple uh reflections on what we've talked about and just um, my personal work um, on this issue. Um, but to thank you guys, too, I know there's a lot going on in Washington today, um, and you could have been anywhere else. So um, we're grateful to you here and to those um, watching online. Um, but this issue is near and dear to my heart. I enter into um, these issues from multiple different perspectives. I cut my teeth on child welfare policy on Capitol Hill. Um, I used to work for one of the former co-chairs of the Adoption Caucus, and um, I'm, I'm so grateful um, that Mr. Adderholt was here. I actually did get to travel to Haiti with him, and it was my first time to a third world country, um, and we entered into some of um, the orphanages and held the babies. And um, one of the stories that has stuck with me for, that will stick with me for the rest of my life, we entered into this orphanage and walked around, played with played with the young children, and we, um, there's this hallway, and there's this little boy in the hallway, and he was in a wheelchair. Um, he, the um, orphanage director shared with us that they had found him um, in this pit somewhere near the orphanage, and they took him in, um, cared for his um, social needs, and um, his name was Wilson, and he was just the most joyful little man you've ever met, and he was sitting in a wheelchair, and above him um, was written out the song lyrics to the song, You Are My Sunshine, and it just stuck with me. This little boy in Haiti, he doesn't know, um, he doesn't know anything else other than his life in this institution, and um, his story really stuck with me, and um, as I have the privilege to go advocate for Little Wilson's um, throughout my work. Um, so I, I cut my teeth on child welfare policy, and when I entered into that work, I had no idea how complex it was um, and, and learned kind of from the top down what the policy looks like. Since then, I have become a CASA in D.C., which stands for Court Appointed Social Advocate, and went through the training and learned from the ground up um, child welfare policy, at least D.C. Um, everyone said it, but but... Each uh, state is so different um, as far as the laws and, and, and what that looks like. So I've entered into um, these issues from that perspective, but I've also entered into it because of my own personal story. Um, I was adopted as a young, young child from Eastern Europe and grew up with five adopted siblings. Uh, we always joke in our house, they're, they're, it's all international. We always joke that the most exciting time in our house is around the Olympics because we're all cheering for different <laughs> countries. So adoption has been my normal for as long as I have been alive. And so I enter into it from a very personal perspective as well. And it has been such a joy to get to work on these issues. Um, I just want to reflect on, um, it was mentioned earlier, um, the new data that was released last month on the number of children in foster care, the number of children that have been adopted. For the first time in years, the number of um, children entering into foster care has um, declined. And there's many different reasons for that. Naomi could probably dive a lot deeper into that. Um, 
But the, the number that encouraged me the most is the number of children that have been adopted out of foster care. Um, that should greatly encourage us that those thousands and thousands of children have found a forever home. Um, I know there's a lot of work to be done on these issues. Um, as hard as we work, there's always going to be vulnerable children in this world, domestic and abroad. But we should pause and celebrate um, the good work that has been done. Um, celebrate the that all those children have homes now um, forever um, and allow that to further spur our work um, in these spaces. Um, I want you to leave um, with two, two points. Uh, number one, the importance of a flourishing pluralistic society. Um, I, I so appreciate Herbie um, and his humility and gentleness in approaching these conversations of holding um, truth and justice in one hand and grace and kindness in the other hand and the posture of listening, but also um, allowing and, and inviting everyone to the table. Um, we know that there are so many children in need of care and keeping the vulnerable children at the forefront um, instead of politics at the forefront and allowing each agency to serve vulnerable children, I think is so important to a flourishing society. Um, and then the last thing I want you to leave with is um, I am personally so spurred on by the work of uh, William Wilberforce, who helped reimagine a society without uh, slavery. And we know a couple hundred years later that he was uh, successful in his endeavors. And I'm constantly spurred on by helping reimagine a world where uh, there are more than enough foster families so that we can have that flexibility, where there are more than enough agencies serving, where no child goes without um, a home or a family. And I am constantly spurred on by that, helping reimagine what a society could look like and what a world could look like um, when we all step in and, and care for uh, the world's vulnerable children. Um, each one of us has a, a entry point into these issues, I think. Some of us have a very personal story. Some of us have adopted or been foster parents. Um, and others of us, you know, your entry point into these issues might be financially helping someone who wants to adopt or foster, or um, your what you might have abundance of might be time and you can volunteer and these different things, or you could use your platform and voice to write and to speak and to advocate. But um, our president, Dr. Russell Moore, talks about these issues, um, like the Great Commission, um, of everyone is called to go and tell, and everyone, um, at least from a Christian perspective, um, it's a commandment to care for widows and orphans. And so each one of us has an entry point into these issues. Um, and so I would encourage you to join us in reimagining what that society could look like where our vulnerable um, children have love, permanency in their lives. And um, there's lots of work to be done, lots of policy to um, push forward, but um, I am encouraged. I think there's lots of great work to be done. Um, that hasn't done to be done. And um, so with that, um, if you'll join me in helping thank our panelists. Thank you.